I would like to ask that now we turn our attention to the Word of God. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Today we're going to begin at verse 15. This morning we're going to conclude the two-part series we're doing on church discipline, everybody's favorite topic. I, now I say that, of course, jokingly, but I hope that as we walk through this together today and as we have done so last week, that you will genuinely recognize and feel the safety that the Lord has provided for us in the incredibly precious gift of church discipline. While you're there, let me uh, just ask that you join me in asking for the Lord's blessing over this time we have in the Word. Let's pray. Our Lord, our sovereign God, uh, we come before you today acknowledging the fact that You are all-knowing, and that you have given wisdom to us through the Word. Lord, we acknowledge that there is nowhere else that we can go to find truth or wisdom other than to you, and you have given us that wisdom in the Scriptures. So, Lord, now as we come before the Word, I ask that you would help us to humbly bow our hearts down before you by hearing it. Lord, I ask that you would open our eyes to see your glory more clearly and that we'd be made more aware of the love that you have for us and that you have placed over us in the process of church discipline. Lord, I pray that today's sermon would be encouraging, it would be enlightening, that it would be informational and instructional, but Lord, I also pray that it would be compassionate and that it would be gentle and that it would be encouraging and that it would be honoring to those who are here so that they might grow in our awareness of what it looks like to love you by loving one another in this way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week we covered a great deal about church discipline. We looked at five things that church discipline is, and we looked at eight reasons why we do it. All of those things that we studied last week were designed to answer the questions, what is church discipline and why do we do it? Well, this week, we're going to look at a few different questions. This week, we're going to be asking the who and the how and the when of church discipline. And the way that we are going to go about answering that, of course, is by looking at the Scriptures. So let's turn now to the words of Jesus as we hear how he has told us to carry out church discipline in his own words. Please follow along in your copy of Scripture, starting in Matthew 18, verse 15. This is God's word. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your... But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church... Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, our approach Uh, to this text is to break it down by looking at each of the four steps of church discipline that we find within these verses. So let's jump right into number one. The first step is one-on-one rebuke. Scroll your finger up in the text a little bit to Matthew chapter 18 verse 7 and listen to how seriously God expects us to think about sin. 
He says, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. In order to understand the grounding of church discipline, in order to understand the significance of it, we are going to have to recognize the stakes that we're dealing with here. Many times when people think about this first step of church discipline, they're thinking about it in terms of personal insult or personal annoyance. Our key verse here for point number one is, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. The emphasis is not on the words against you. The emphasis is on the word sin. If your brother sins, the emphasis falls there on the fact that sin is a big deal and it necessitates approaching it not because of the personal offense that occurs, but because it's an offense against God. The problem here is not that your feelings are hurt. The problem here is that there is a sin issue in the life of one of the members of your church family and you need to help them and protect them from themselves. Jesus had just said in this very context that sin is so significant that if it's pervasive in your life, you might need to rip out an eye or cut off an arm. Now, please, please, please hear me. He is speaking figuratively here. He is not saying to literally cut off your arm or pull out your eye. There is a reason that the early church did not have a lot of one-eyed or one-armed people in it because they understood that Jesus is speaking metaphorically here. But the metaphor makes it more extreme, not less extreme. I will tell you, I've mentioned this in the past, I know someone who, although I think he had severe mental issues, took this literally and actually chopped off his arm because it caused him to sin. And I will tell you just from observing in this one individual's life, it is far more difficult to actually stop sinning than it is to cut off an arm. It is a more serious thing, not a less serious thing that it is metaphorical. The point that Jesus was making here is that there will be times that we must take drastic steps to radically amputate things from our lives that cause us to sin. Maybe you need to stop watching television shows for a while if you can't have discernment about what the content is that you are consuming. Maybe you need to quit hanging out with certain people that constantly lead you towards drunkenness. Maybe you need to quit your job if it forces you to constantly be in compromising situations or where they force you to be dishonest. Maybe you need to get a flip phone. Those things are hard to do. Those are radical steps to fight sin. But here's the problem. Professing Christians will often go through life refusing to make hard changes unless they are lovingly nudged by someone else, a godly brother and sister, to do so. In fact, many people will not even see their sin unless someone shines the mirror of the word of God on it so that they see that area of their life more clearly. So as we start here with the first step, please make sure that you are viewing this command properly. This is not Jesus operating like a preschool teacher 
telling his young pupils how to make it right when someone is using the toy that you want to play with. If Jesus was just telling us how to get along, then he would also have included what to do if we had sinned against one of our brothers in the church. He actually does that many times, for example, in Matthew chapter 5. He is not just talking about unity or reconciliation here. He doesn't go there in this portion because the focus is not just reconciliation. It's not just unity. Those are beautiful gifts. They're side effects. The portion of this text in Matthew 18 is not about that. This portion is about protecting one another from the life-destroying, soul-destroying effects of sin. He is showing us how he designed the church to protect the true sheep of God from hell. Now, to be clear, the church does not save anyone. The blood of Jesus saves people. It is God the Father who predestined your salvation and God the Son who purchased your salvation. And it is God the Spirit who applied your salvation in real time. It is also important for you to know that salvation is spoken about in three ways in the Bible. The first stage, if you will, of salvation, the way that it is usually spoken about, is in terms of justification. That is when salvation first comes to you and you receive the grace of God and your sins are completely wiped away. Then I'm just going to jump to the end. That's the obvious one. We talk about that in terms of what some people call ultimate salvation or what the Bible calls glorification. There is one day when ultimately you will be finally saved. You will no longer be in this body of death. You will no longer have any sin nature. You will be in heaven with God forever. That is what we call glorification. The Bible sometimes refers to that, that part of our salvation as the word salvation. God saved you by justifying you, and he will save you by bringing you to glory. But in between there, there's a middle piece. Yes, I'm speaking about sanctification. And there are multiple places in the New Testament where sanctification is referred to using the word salvation. For example, 2 Thessalonians 2.13. It says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification. Saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. How should we view salvation? It is a holistic plan of God from beginning to end. It is from that time you first believe until he brings you home to heaven and everything in between. And that salvific work of sanctification is what we are seeing on display in Matthew chapter 18. We are seeing that God designed the church as one of the ways that guarantees our hope and keeps us saved. He is showing us what part the church plays in keeping his people within the family of God. Perhaps that language makes you feel uncomfortable, but that's exactly how the Bible describes it on many occasions. I'm just going to show you one. Listen to the closing words of the book of James. He has just written an entire book of correction for the people of God. And in that book of correction, he describes the role of the church in keeping our salvation. He says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, that's step one of church discipline. If someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. There is a salvific element to this when we actually practice step one of church discipline faithfully, when we go to those who are in sin and we call them out of that sin and into life of obedience and holiness. 
When we talk about church discipline, we are talking about God using you to lovingly work in the ongoing sanctification process of a person by being a tool of what the Bible calls salvation for them. As I said earlier, being silent and letting someone languish in their sin is literally the worst thing that you can do for them. We talked about that last week. It is a hateful thing to see that somebody is in absolute danger and do nothing about it. For them, it is evil to do nothing because there are so many warnings about what happens to someone who goes on sinning without repenting. For example, the clearest example I can think of of their their identity is found in 1 John 3, 6, where it says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. If you want people to see and know God, particularly here he's talking about salvation, you will ensure that when you see ongoing unrepentant sin in the life of a fellow person in the church, you will call that out and approach it. Now, I could be wrong, But I think if we saw the admonishment of Jesus to go to others and rebuke them in this light, in the light of protection, then we would be far more likely to do it. We get so caught up in the personal element of rebuke and admonishment that we tend to ignore the spiritual necessity of it. That is why we are all commanded to watch over one another and to lovingly call out sin when we see it in each other's lives. But, Practically speaking, what does that even look like in the church? Jesus said that this is the first step. He says it starts with a one-on-one conversation. You go to the person and you present your sin to them. Now, there are four things that I want you to consider as you think about how to do that well. First, you must really know people. Jesus is saying this with the expectation that you have some kind of relationship to the person that you're speaking to. This is obvious by the fact that you are close enough to the person to see sin in their life that nobody else has either seen or called out. So before we go any further, let me just ask you, do you have relationships like that in the church? Do you really know people and do people really know you? Or are you just putting on a mask while you're here and living out a very different lifestyle while you're at work all week? Do you allow people close enough to you to see the areas of your life where you fall short? Or is your sin private, hidden, locked away in the darkness of your own home or workplace or in your hobbies or your internet browser? Do you truly know others and do others truly know you in such a way that you can speak into one another's lives about sin issues? We are called to be like that in the church. Secondly, you were to go to the person before talking to others. One of the most destructive things that can happen in a church is the insidious sin of gossip. I've been in churches in the past where people would never dare to confront anyone with their sin, but they have no problem talking about it as soon as they turn their back and walk away. I won't linger here, but you need to know that the biblical approach to church discipline is to go directly to the individual who has sinned before getting other people involved. Go directly to them. Don't spread it around. Third, you need to be sure that you're not being hypocritical. Matthew 7, 3 through 5 tells us that Jesus was speaking about this kind of approach where you must call out sin in another person. He doesn't say not to do it, but he says make sure you're not being a hypocrite. He says, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. 
When I was in uh, middle school, I was in a much different kind of church than I am now. And one of the things that our church often did, on, even on Sundays, was we had skits that were used as illustrative purposes. Oftentimes, they were nonsensical and unhelpful. But there is one that I think was valuable that I remember to this day very clearly. And part of the reason was I was an actor in this skit in which we had one person come up on the stage and he had nothing on his face or nothing visible. And then we had two other people, myself included, who walked onto the stage with a large pool noodle sticking out of our eye. And we walked up to the person and said, hey, man, you've got something in your eye. You've got to get that thing out. And we're literally like smacking him with the pool noodle as we were waving back and forth. And he's like, I, what are you talking about? You've got something really wrong with you. And we're like, where there's nothing wrong with us, you have something in your eye. And then eventually we walked away frustrated. And he's like, oh, oh. Oh, yeah, I did have something in my eye, and he finds it on his own. That's the skit. The point that Jesus is making here is that you must make sure that you are not calling out sin in others when you're not willing to deal with that sin in your own life. You're never going to be a sinless perfect person. That's true. You're never going to be perfect. That is true. And that fact will play into, into the way you approach people. If you view yourself as sinless, then you won't, will not walk into a conversation humbly. But you should at least be at the point where you were dealing with your own sin and walking in repentance before calling out sin in others. You should be walking in repentance before demanding that from people in your church. That's part number three I want you to know about how to go there. And the last thing I, I think you must know about how to approach people is that when you are dealing with sin in another person, you are called to do so in a spirit of gentleness. Listen to the softness that Paul instructs us to have when we approach those who are caught in sin in Galatians 6, 1 and 2. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. How? In a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens. Think of the imagery of that. Bear one another's burdens. You are not walking in and pointing a finger. You are walking in and saying, let me help you carry this to the cross and deal with it. He says, bear one another's burdens and in doing so, or and so, fulfill the law of Christ. This is not optional. It is commanded. That's what he's speaking about when he says the word law. This is part of what we are called to do as Christians. Well, what does that look like? It looks something like this. It looks like when you see a pervasive or an unrepentant sin in the life of a person, you say to them, brother, I want you to know that I love you and I have something that is really hard to say to you, but I need to say it. I'm not a sinless perfect person and I'm not a perfect messenger, but I want you to know that there is an area of your life where I see that you are doing something that does not line up with what the Bible says. And I love you enough not to beat around the bush about it. I've seen this particular sin in your life and we need to talk about it. And if this is true, you say, and this is the way the sin has impacted me directly. And I want to help you walk close with the Lord and fight that sin. Will you let me help you do that? It's amazing how often the Holy Spirit uses that kind of an approach to bring about radical transformation in the lives of God's people. In fact, I think probably it is a low estimate for me to say that in the 18 years that I've been in full-time ministry, that there's been at least 95% of the time that this is as far as church discipline goes. This is where it stops because God uses that to transform the heart of a person. That's step number one, one-on-one -on -one rebuke. What if that doesn't work? Then we have to go to step two, which is to take a witness with you. Now, I think it's important to make sure that you don't view this as just bringing back up. This is not a matter of intimidation or manipulative pressure. 
Look again at Matthew 18, 16. It says, But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, Jesus is not creating a completely new concept where, when he gets here to step two of church discipline. He is carrying over a principle that was well established in Old Covenant law. This is made clear when Jesus quotes from the very section of the Mosaic law that was used to govern the courts in Israel. In particular, he quotes from Deuteronomy 19 where it deals with the testimony of witnesses. Look at what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 19.15. He says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Now, it looks slightly different because that's in Hebrew, and when Jesus is speaking, he's speaking in Aramaic, and then the disciples wrote it down in Greek, and now it's translated to us in English. So it looks slightly different, different, but what he is quoting when he says in Matthew chapter 18 that there must be two or three witnesses to establish it, he is quoting directly from Deuteronomy 19. Whether you knew it or not, we actually already looked at a portion of Deuteronomy uh, 19 last week. If you remember, Paul concludes the chapter we looked at last week, chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, by saying, purge the evil person from among you. Now, if you were paying close attention to that text, you would notice that there are supposed to be, uh, there are supposed to be quotation marks around that statement. And that's because Paul is going back to that exact same passage that Jesus referenced in Matthew chapter 19, and he focuses in on another part of what it says in Deuteronomy 19, starting in verse 19. It says, so you shall purge the evil person from your midst. Sound familiar? Jesus and Paul are both drawing from this concept of Deuteronomy 19 and the way that we go about correcting those with multiple witnesses. And the result is to purge. What comes between the person sinning and purging is the necessity of two or more witnesses. Now, in order to have witnesses, you need to have them seek to understand and to address the problem of sin. Or as Deuteronomy 19 puts it, that they must judge carefully about the sin. And so what do we see happening in Deuteronomy 19.18? Well, it speaks of the moderating party being a judge who will do his best to investigate and to ensure that the offended party is actually right in his accusation. That's precisely what Jesus is referring to in step two of church discipline. This is not simply about pressuring someone to repent. It's not just saying, hey, I'm going to bring another person so that this seems more like a big deal to you. It's about ensuring that the person who is making the accusation is actually right in their accusation and correct in pointing out error. And I think that we can learn a great deal from this regarding who it is that we are supposed to take with us to this second step of confrontation. Who should we be taking with us when it says to get someone and bring them? Jesus does not say directly, but the text that he is quoting from speaks about who should go with them. Specifically, in that case, in the Old Testament, it was to be either a judge or a priest. You go to someone who knows the word of God. Remember, the judges, their law book was the Bible. And so he says, you go find a judge or a priest and you take them with you. 
The principle of that, I believe, still stands in that the person you take with you should meet certain criteria. Not that we have judges or priests in the church like they did. We are all to judge one another, as it says in 1 Corinthians 5, and we are all a kingdom of priests, so this regards you, but the concept of who you should bring with us should be people that meet certain criteria. He's not teaching you just to find the next warm body and bring them with you. He's not just saying you need one more set of eyes and ears. He is suggesting that we find somebody who is going to not automatically take our side, but judge based on the word of God. And I think we can clearly surmise that Jesus is anticipating that the kind of person you would select to go with you is somebody who would be more spiritually mature than you are, and that they would be a discerning person. It would be a person that knows the scriptures and can counsel from them, and someone who has the kind of authority that could call to repentance. It should be someone who would serve as a good witness if you had to escalate to the next step. Somebody who is capable of thinking carefully about these sin issues and explaining them verbally. In our church, it would usually be best for this reason to ask the elders or one of the deacons or maybe a community group leader to help you in that process. Notice that Jesus makes it clear that it doesn't have to be a single person. He says two or three witnesses. Now, it may be beneficial to let the elders know and one or more of them could accompany you and help you in that conversation. Hopefully, that person hears you and repents. But if not, we are required to move to step three, which is to tell it to the church. Now, this is where informal church discipline becomes formal church discipline. Jesus said in Matthew eighteen seventeen, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now, directly after he speaks about step four, that, he speaks about step four, where he says, if he refuses to even listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, that's part three and four together. We, we need to kind of, before we jump into the second half of church discipline, the formal half of church discipline, you need to know that there are a great deal of doctrinal realities underneath of what he is saying that have to be understood in order to do this properly. Now, you may notice that there's not a lot of details that he gives you about how to do that. Does he say, go to the church? Does that mean you just go to every individual person and tell them? I mean, back in those days, think about it. There's no telephone. There is no email. There is no uh, church system of communication where they can easily send information to everyone without somebody standing before the entire congregation and telling them, do you just walk around and talk about this with every single person? No, of course not. That is textbook gossip. So how do we go about this? Jesus is speaking to the apostles about the church before the church had even been born. So he doesn't speak about the mechanisms of how all of this will play out. However, we do see in other places several truths that help us understand how we are to go about the delicate duty of making public the hidden sin of someone in the church. But in order to see how step three and four should play out, you have to know certain doctrinal pieces to your theological puzzle in order to make it work. There are four specific things that I want to point out here that you must grasp in order to understand how steps three and four are to be carried out. Now, there are extensive biblical arguments, theological arguments, and doctrinal arguments that I could carry out for you for each of these, but for the sake of time, I am going to move rapidly through each of them. If you want to know more about any of these, I would love nothing more than to spend hours and hours and hours showing you from the scripture why we teach these things here at the church. But the first thing that you have to know doctrinally is you must know what a church is. If you view the church as nothing more than a spiritual activity that you do, 
then you will never actually understand church discipline. If this is just a place that you gather with people that you like or people who think like you or have similar beliefs to you, then you still will not understand church discipline. Perhaps you think of church as nothing more than a building. I know, especially for people who come out of the Roman Catholic Church, there's often this idea that that is the church. The building is the church. Maybe they look at the capital of the church in Rome. They think of the Roman Catholic Church, and they think that is the church. No, the church is the people. The local church is a body. It is a unit. It is a corpus of believers that have covenanted together and who have true accountability over one another's lives. The modern-day evangelical consumeristic idea of church cannot do what Jesus is saying to do because that kind of church body has no accountability to one another. Let me explain what I mean. There are people who go to churches where they walk in, they sit in the room, and they leave like they would at a concert. They have no in, uh, real authority connection to anyone in that building. If the leaders of the church said to them that they must do something, or if any other person in the congregation said to them, you must repent of something, they have no reason to do so because they have no actual connection to that church. They are consuming they are not part of that place. There is an expectation, even from Jesus, that you not only know one another thoroughly, but that you also guard one another in the faith. And closer, closely related to that doctrine is that you, must that you must grasp this as well in order to understand church discipline is the doctrine of church membership. Membership at a church is not like membership at a country club or a subscription to Netflix. It is not something that you join just so you can get the perks that you want and leave the rest behind. When someone becomes a member of this church, what we are doing as a body is this. We are saying, we believe that your testimony is credible. We believe that you are actually a follower of Jesus Christ. And we are telling the entire world that we think you are a Christian by allowing you to join this body as we make our way to heaven in the grace of God together. And that is why, historically, membership and baptism are so closely intertwined. That is why we require that every member of our church be baptized, because baptism is a declaration that we believe the testimony of a person is real. Baptism is part of that outward proclamation that we affirm your salvation. Now, let me be clear. The local church is not all of the people in this building at any given time. It is not even every saved person who is in this room at any given time. Our local church is made up of the people who have actually submitted themselves to the authority of one another by joining in covenant membership, which is why you have to understand point number three. You must understand the doctrine of congregationalism. When you were to escalate church discipline to the level of the church, it is because the church body has real, genuine, God-given authority over the individual member. Where does that authority come from? Jesus said in Matthew 28, verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So there's only one way that the church can have any authority. That is if Jesus himself gives it to the church. Well, if you're going to call someone to repentance or escalate something to the point where you are going to remove somebody from your community, you need that kind of authority. It's only Jesus that can give it. Let's see if he does. Look again at Matthew chapter 18 and verse 19. Notice 
what he says here in some of the most misunderstood and most abused verses in the entire Bible. He says, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. If they agree about what? What is he even talking about? This is not a general prayer request that he's referencing. This is talking about church discipline. Jesus is telling them that they have the authority to carry out church discipline in his name because he is among them. He is present. Therefore, his authority to discipline is carried out by the church. This is not an isolated concept. In fact, we saw the very same thing in our passage last week. One very astute member of our church made a note to me afterwards and said, you didn't really say anything about this one particular thing in the text. And I said, you're right, because I'm going to say that next week. And here it is, 1 Corinthians 5, 4 through 5. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, speaking of Paul, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver, them, to deliver this man over to Satan. How are you to deliver him? With the power, also the word for authority, of our Lord Jesus. The only way that we can understand steps three and four is to understand it in the context of God-given authority. The congregation has real, genuine, true, God-given authority to remove someone from the covenant community because we have been given that authority by Christ Jesus himself. But perhaps you're noticing as we made our way through these doctrinal things that there's a seemingly conspicuously absent piece of the puzzle here. You might be asking, well, how in the world does church leadership come into play into all of this? What about the elders? How do they fit into this puzzle? Well, I'm glad you asked. We know from the word that elders are the ones who are to govern and to have oversight in the local church. Let me just show you a couple, a couple examples. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2 says to elders, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Doing what? Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Now, there is a command here of elders of the church that they will shepherd the flock. That is a kingly language. That is a pastoral shepherding language. And it is an oversight language, as it says here. At the very least, this indicates that the church discipline process would never happen apart from elders or without their direct oversight. Hebrews 13, 17 adds, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, this reveals that within the authority of the congregation as a whole, there are some men who were called to serve as leaders, and part of the responsibility that these elders have is to keep watch over your souls. You need to recognize that there are people that have been set by God over the flock that will give an account. I am constantly aware of the fact that one day I am going to stand before God and I am going to give an account for a group of people. Who will I give an account for? It will not be for every single person that ever walks in these doors. There are many people who walk in after I start preaching and they don't like what I have to say and they walk out before I finish preaching and I never even have a conversation with them. Will I give an account for that person? I do not believe that I will. Who am I going to give an account for? Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. It is those people who have covenanted together as a body of believers. It is those people who have submitted themselves in church, discipline, uh, in church membership. 
We don't have any authority as elders over people who are not members of this body. And as much as we can give encouragement and love and kindness to them, we cannot instruct them to do anything with any kind of authority, like it commands us to in Scripture. But for every member who is within the membership of this church, it is the elder's responsibility before God to watch over your soul, which would include in some way the process of discipline if that were ever to be necessary. So now with all of that in mind, what does step three look like at LBC? Well, it looks like bringing the sin issue to the attention of the elders, if they don't already know, so that they can guide the process of taking it to the church. Sometimes things are taken to the church immediately. Sometimes there are sin issues that we have a special business meeting called and we say, we got to talk to the congregation right now. On the other hand, there are times that have existed when we have communicated with people that are trapped in sin and we say to them, there needs to be repentance and it appears that there is a genuine heartfelt attempt to repent. There is somebody who is actually working, it seems, towards change in their life. When we say there are steps you need to take, they begin to follow them. And if that's the case, if they do repent, there is never a time that we bring it to the church. We instead acknowledge their repentance. But there are times when over a course of attempted apparent repentance, it becomes clear this is nothing more than an act in order to keep themselves from public church discipline, and there is no actual genuine change. They just continue to do the same thing over and over and over again, and it is at that point that we do have to address that thing publicly. And the way that that is done is at a membership meeting of the church, a business meeting, And we call out the sin in that person, and we acknowledge that we must approach them in a spirit of gentleness and call them to repentance. Now, we usually state right up front at a meeting like that exactly what the timeline is for the remainder of their discipline. In other words, we will say something like this. There is a sin in this individual's life, and it's been a really sad process. We've been trying to call them out of it. But to this point, we have not been able to convince them to walk in holiness and to turn away from this sin. Church, we need you to call them, to write them, to email them, to go have a conversation with them and call them to repentance. Now, if step three ever takes place in this church, which hopefully nothing ever escalates again to this point ever for the future, but if it ever does, whether you know that person well or not, whether you are familiar with all of the details or not, whether you think you are good at rebuking them or not, for the sake of that person's soul, that is when you as a member of the church are called to reach out to that person and call them to repent. The one stipulation that I would give where I would say this is not true for every person is that it is not always a good idea for men to reach across the gender aisle to women or women to reach across the gender aisle to men. If there's a man in that issue, let the men reach out. If it's a woman having the issue, have women reach out. And the hope is that many people call them to repentance and that the Holy Spirit would convict and bring about genuine transformation. If not, then it is necessary to move to the final step, which is often called excommunication. Now that word simply means to remove somebody from communion. Do you know where we find the word communion in the Bible? Well, if you're reading the English Standard Version, you actually don't find it at all. But it comes from one place in particular, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. What I want to do is I want to briefly just show you three different translations of this. First, I'm going to show you the King James Version of it, which says, The cup of blessing which we bless is not the communion of... Uh, Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? The English Standard Version adds uh, a little different 
uh, way of writing it when it changes the word communion to participation. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? My favorite of them is the New American Standard, which says, is the cup of blessing which we bless not a sharing in the blood of Christ? When you piece all of these together, it, I think, helps you to get a better picture, a fuller idea of what is being spoken about. It's talking about togetherness, communing, participating, sharing in the body and blood of Christ. Well, that's talking specifically about the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is, again, not just a thing that we do because it's a tradition. The Lord's Supper is to be understood as a major part of church life. It is the rallying cry of Christians that we join together and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But when we see someone out of the church, uh, when we set someone out of the church, rather, we are to remove them from the opportunity to partake the Lord's table. We are to excommune them. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul tells us not to associate with such people, not even to eat with such a person. Jesus put it in terms that the first century Jewish apostles would have understood very well. He told them to treat the excommunicated person like a Gentile or a tax collector. So what does that look like in real life? We're not talking about abstract ideas here. We're talking about real people, people that you'll probably see again in real life. How do we cast somebody out and how do we function with them moving forward? Well, as we saw last week, the process of removal by, is by the elders putting forward the person for excommunication and then the congregation voting yes or no. And as we saw last week, 1 Corinthians chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, it is to be done by a vote of the majority. So, if the majority of the congregation votes to remove an unrepentant person from membership, they are immediately removed from our roles and they are informed that we have publicly declared that we no longer view them as a believer because they are living in ways that the Bible teaches that Christians will not live. I think it's really interesting. One author that I was reading a few weeks ago noted that in the scripture, the language that is used about excommunication, about setting someone outside, is literally almost like a reverse baptism. It is using the same language in reverse to say, with baptism, we acknowledge you as a genuine Christian. With excommunication, we are declaring we do not believe that you have any participation in the spirit or in the body or blood of Jesus Christ. So what we are called to do is we are to set them outside. And after that point, the only time that they would have uh, be welcomed back into our congregation or gathering would be if they were coming forward for public repentance, which is the hope. But we would no longer view them as brothers and sisters in Christ. If you see them, you treat them like somebody who is in the world and lost, not a brother or sister in Christ. You show charity to them. You show kindness to them. You are not rude. You are not unkind. This is not the Salem witch trials here. If you have to work with that person or live with that person, then you function with that person appropriately as you would with any unbeliever. But if you are not required by family ties or by providence to be with that person, then you should follow Paul's instructions and not associate with that person at all. Well, what if you disagree with the way the church voted? What if you don't think the person should have been disciplined in the first place? Well, there's no wiggle room in scripture for you to go against what the church has said. You are still to abide by the authoritative declaration made by the church. You were to have nothing to do with that person. And I know that's a really hard thing, and it's, it's a good thing that we grow close to others, and that it is a heart-wrenching thing when we have to set them outside of the church. But even though this sermon has already been long and full, you need to know that there is hope in this. 
There is hope in setting them outside. There is hope in handing them over to Satan. And by continuing to have a relationship with them like you did before they were set outside, you undermine the hope that is there in bringing them back to Christ. There are two possibilities when it comes to the person who has been removed. They are either an unbeliever who was able to hide, like Judas was within the congregation of the believers for a time, or hopefully they are a believer that is completely rejecting the Holy Spirit's promptings. And if they are a believer, the Lord is going to use the faithful ministry of the church to break their heart and bring them to repentance. If they're not a believer, the Lord will either save their soul by revealing their self-deception, or he will remove the wolf from amongst the flock. But regardless of the outcome, it is better for the church of God that Jesus' own blood, that we follow these instructions, steps one, two, three, and four. He has promised to purify the bride so that the church will be ready on the last day to be presented blameless to him. I know that ending a sermon on excommunication is hard, but I just want to point you before we close in prayer to the gospel. This is all something that we are to do because there is salvation readily available in Jesus Christ. At any point along the process, the sinner can repent. At any point that you hear the words that I am saying today, if you are caught in sin, you can repent, turn, and acknowledge that your sin is wicked. Turn away from it and turn to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. And there is promise that every single person who does that will be saved. If that is you today, Listen, if you're not a believer and you're here with us, thank you so much for coming. This has been a long sermon about technical things within the local body here in terms of church discipline. If you don't know Jesus Christ, the most important thing you know is that Jesus Christ saves sinners like you and me. And I would love nothing more than to talk with you about that. So if you have questions about that, please stick around after the service. I'd love to talk about it. Let's pray. Father God, we just ask that today in all of these things that we have covered, that you would give us clarity within our body about what church discipline is and how to carry it out properly, the who and the when and the how, that we would know exactly how to carry out step one, the most difficult often of the steps, that we would be able to go to the individual that has sinned and speak to them about their sin and how it stands against you as an offense. Lord, I pray that you would help us to do that faithfully and well. And Lord, I also pray that in all of these things, you would give us the grace as a church to be in agreement on these things, that we might carry out this kind of process when it is sadly necessary, that we might do it biblically and faithfully in accordance with your word. And we pray that in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.